WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. People are often familiar with the notion that time moves slower in your frame of reference as one of the consequences of Einstein's theory of relativity. But there's also an analogous notion of psychological relativity that can predict psychological time dilation as well. Today we're here to talk with Carolyn Kroger about her work. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Carolyn? Yes, I'm a fifth-year PhD student in the psychology department at MSU in the Cognition and Cognitive Neuroscience program, and I work in the Timing, Attention, and Perception Lab under the direction of Devin McCauley. Timing and Perception Lab, that sounds really fun. Now, I've never really heard about psychological time before. Could you please introduce that to us and our listeners? The psychology of time is a field of psychology that studies how we perceive any sort of time interval or even the relationship between different events in the temporal domain. So what we study in our lab is how people perceive events in time. So that could be how fast you perceive a car driving past you or how much time elapses between two different events. It also relates to things like physical time, like rhythm. And we essentially just study how people perceive events in time, as well as how they produce events in time. For example, moving at the right time. And it's important to study timing because it relates to all sorts of different activities that we produce. So that could be simple tasks like reaching out in front of you to grab a cup of coffee. You need to be able to time the reaching so that you don't reach too far and knock it over. You need to be able to time the grasping so that you can pick up the cup and then timing the lifting of the cup and bringing it back to you to take a sip so that you don't slosh it around or something like that. That reminds me about how people will talk about a nice memory that they had and they'll feel like it passed faster than they had wished. But if they had thought about like an upcoming class that they were going to take, it could maybe seem like a drag if they aren't interested in the subject, then that single hour alone could feel like forever. How does something like psychological time perception studied in a laboratory setting? Well, there are a few different ways that we often study time. And you're exactly right in pointing out the difference in time perception when it comes to maybe an enjoyable activity or something that's not so enjoyable. And in fact, there are a couple of common sayings that reflect that exact sentiment. You may have heard, a watched pot never boils, or time flies when you're having fun. And that really highlights that time doesn't tick up, like we may think of a stopwatch in this kind of consistent way, and that it does ebb and flow and our perception of it changes. So one way that we study timing is by having people listen to a set of intervals, and then there's a period of time of silence, and then listen to another set of intervals, and then compare the second set to the first set and say, were those intervals faster or slower? Or was that interval shorter or longer? And that's one way to study time perception. And then on the production side of things, a common task that we have people do is called synchronization continuation tapping. And this is essentially just tapping your finger on a key or on a tabletop, and you tap along with a series of intervals. For example, a metronome, so just evenly spaced beats. And then the metronome will cut out, and your goal as the participant is to keep on tapping at the same pace to the best of your ability. 
And then what we do is look at that series of time intervals that you produced and see how well you kept the same tempo and how much variability there was in the timing of your tapping. Some of you may not know that Danny and I play a few musical instruments. I used to play the flute and piano. And the way how I was taught to keep my rhythm in time was to tap my foot when I was playing the flute. Whenever you're playing an instrument, Danny, how do you keep time? Yeah, I remember whenever I was playing guitar, I would always have like a little mental bell ringing in my head, just like a metronome sounds. And that would help me a lot whenever I would play like different guitar solos or whenever I was playing rhythmic sections. It all really depended on what the level of music I was playing and how fast it was going to be played. Yeah, like with piano, I couldn't tap my foot because I had to hit the pedals while I was playing. That just reminds me about what Carolyn was saying about synchronization continuation tapping where they're tapping beats. So Carolyn, whenever you're conducting these experiments, did you ask these participants if they're musicians or not? Yes, we did, actually. And what you're talking about in terms of keeping time when you're playing an instrument is very relevant to the types of studies that we do. So we do always ask our participants about their level of music training and the amount of time that they spend currently practicing or playing music because that can have a big impact on how their timing performance is in these tasks. For example, tapping their finger. And you guys also both pointed out something that's very relevant to what we study. Chelsea, you said that you would tap your foot when you're playing the flute to keep time. And Danny, you said that you had kind of a metronome clicking along in your head. And so essentially what you were doing is what we would call in the musical world, subdividing. And the domain of time psychology, the way that that would play out is when you subdivide, you have smaller intervals to work with, and smaller intervals are usually less variable than larger intervals. So the variability of your timing scales with the average interval that you're producing. Um, And then another interesting phenomenon that's related to that is rushing in orchestral playing, especially in middle school or high school orchestras. It's pretty common that the orchestra, as you go along in the piece, the conductor will start swinging their hands wildly and try to keep them in time. And before you know it, all of the kids are playing faster than they should, and they're playing out of time with each other. And general wisdom in the conducting world is to tell the students to not tap their foot, but do keep that metronome clicking along in their head. Because there's a time delay between the tapping of your foot and registering that in your brain, whereas there's no time delay when you're keeping that time in your head. That's crazy, but it makes sense at the same time that there would be a delay between the thought and the physical motion versus solely just mental recording. This also reminds me a lot about studies on reaction time, however, whenever people are taking driver's tests, for example. Is the reaction time a version of time perception that you study? And do you study other specific forms of time perception? So reaction time is an important part of what we study. Reaction times differ for different modalities in the same way that other aspects of time perception. In the visual domain, when you are synchronizing with a set of, let's say, flashes on a screen, your synchronization accuracy is lower than when you're synchronizing with a series of tones that you hear. So one phenomenon in the timing literature is called the kappa effect. And essentially, in the auditory domain, that's where a change in pitch space creates an illusory change in the temporal space. So 
the change in pitch if you have a series of beeps and you have a bunch of low beeps and one high beep the amount of time between a low beep and a high beep seems like more time than between each of the low beeps so you could have beep 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 and people would perceive there being more time elapsing between the low and high beep just because of the increase in pitch space so it has this illusion of an increase in time Two things you said really stood out to me. One of them was that reaction times are slower than visual cues than for auditory ones. And the other one was that people perceive time differently when it's changing pitches from a low to a higher beam. Is this all because of one certain region in the brain or are there multiple regions of the brain that is processing this? Recently in July, we had an episode that was focused more on brain waves. However, we haven't spoken much about the anatomy of the brain. For example, like the occipital, temporal, parietal lobe, and things like that. Could you tell us, where in the brain are people processing these auditory and these visual cues, and how is that affecting their time perception? That's actually a great question, and the short answer is that we don't exactly know. But when we think about time in the brain, a lot of people would say we have a sense of time. But one thing that's different than our other senses, such as kind of the classic five, touch and smell and taste and hearing and vision, is that each of those senses has a set of organs and usually a set of designated brain regions that correspond to each of those senses. However, we perceive time across all of these different senses. So there's not necessarily one time sense organ. And similarly, we haven't pinpointed one particular area of the brain that's important in timing. But what we know is that there are several circuits that are important for timing in the brain. So one would be the basal ganglia, and that's a set of subcortical structures, and the other would be the cerebellum. And so the basal ganglia has been connected to timing. When we think of beats, that would be like in music, so rhythmic timing and things like that. And then the cerebellum has been related more to timing of movements. We talked about how different audio and visual events can cause an individual perception of time. But what about when someone begins an activity without considering the time they're working on something? Does the amount of time they spend on a task follow a constant trend, or does it change throughout the period of the project? I would say that is probably more related to attention than anything. So the lab that I work in, the Timing Attention and Perception Lab, also takes that into account. Um, And that relates back to the idea of time flies when we're having fun. So when you begin an event that is all-encompassing and it's really engaging and you're attending to it fully because you're really interested in it, typically we think that time passes faster than maybe when you're doing some sort of boring or tedious task where maybe you're thinking about how much time is going past and you're attending to the amount of time that's passing rather than having your attention fully focused on something else. So a lot of people, when they study something like synchronization continuation tapping, they will look at a series of events, for example, keyboard presses that someone produces when they are tapping their finger, but they don't look at what's happening between those events. They really just look at the timing of each tap. But what they're leaving out is all of the change in space that happens when they're lifting their finger up and moving their finger back toward the key and so on and so forth. But the idea is that space and time are a unified dimension. So when you ignore all of what's happening between each of those time points, 
you're really ignoring important information that could tell you about what's going on in the brain. So for example, when you're talking about synchronization continuation tapping, People have used this as a diagnostic and said poor timing performance on synchronization continuation tapping indicates a deficit of timing. And that's been tied to these various neurological disorders. However, these neurological disorders tend to have deficits in movement as well. In the past, I've done different tests, such as audio and visual tests, where I have to click a button whenever I see something or I hear a certain pitch. Whenever you're conducting these experiments, is someone holding something where they're clicking it like what I was saying, or are you using a different technology? So what we're doing in our lab is having people hooked up to a three-dimensional motion tracking system with a motion tracker on their pointer finger, and they set their hand on a table in front of them and then simply tap their finger on the table, maybe like if you were listening to a song in the car or something like that. So we use the three-dimensional motion tracking because in the past, when people have looked at the timing of simple tasks like tapping a finger, they've just looked at a series of key presses like what you're talking about. Maybe you were tapping your finger on a piano keyboard or a computer keyboard. But what we're able to see with using three-dimensional motion tracking, all of the motion between each tap. So we can see the spatial aspects as well as the temporal aspects. That could be the amplitude of the finger movement, like the height of the finger movement, or the amount of time that they're keeping their finger resting on the table. So this technology really allows us to see a full picture of everything that's happening in time and space when they're doing this timing task. Throughout the interview, we talked about individual time perception and spatial movements, but how does this change when multiple people are involved? It's always so amazing to me whenever I watch these Broadway shows and their ability to act and react with each other in sync. So much of what we do as humans, as social creatures, involves interacting with one another. And a lot of those actions and interactions involve us coordinating the timing of our movements. So one of our recent studies, we had two people doing the synchronization continuation tapping together. So they were instructed to synchronize their tapping with a series of beeps, and then when the beeps stopped, they needed to synchronize their tapping with each other while also trying to keep that same pace going. So what we found is that when two people are sitting across from each other and tapping together, they not only synchronize the timing of their taps, but they actually match the spatial dynamics of their movements. So specifically, they will match the height of their finger between taps while they're tapping in synchrony with each other. I love how you've built upon this project. It's pretty neat that people are synchronizing the height of their fingers as well whenever they're tapping. What does this all mean, though? How are you interpreting this data? So we're interpreting this as people being sensitive to more than just the timing, even when they're just instructed to do something in time with each other. So they're really sensitive to just the visual aspect of seeing the finger movements, and they're matching those in space, which it's not something that they're explicitly instructed to do. And it wouldn't necessarily be something that they have to do to match the timing. So that to us indicates that there's a relationship between the space and time when we produce something, a simple movement like tapping a finger. It just goes to show how complicated things can get when you add more variables to a problem. A lot like the difficult three-body problem that is extremely complicated in physics. How does the connection between time perception and spatial movement change when a person has a neurological impairment? 
So that's a really important question for us to ask because what we've found is that patients with disorders such as Parkinson's or with lesions of the cerebellum or a damage to their cerebellum have disrupted timing. But one issue with that is people tend to just look at the timing of the movements without really looking at the spatial aspects of those movements. So it could be that there are actually disruptions in their motor output as well as disruptions in timing, or it could just be disruptions in motor output that look like disruptions of timing. But in Parkinson's, we see that when the area of the brain that produces dopamine is affected, that decrease in dopamine affects the initiation of movements. So people are not able to start a movement when they would like to move. I think this research has a lot of potential. How can you translate your research to therapeutics so that it can benefit people, for example, people with Parkinson's? So understanding how timing works in the brain and how we produce movements in time can help develop therapeutic techniques for people with Parkinson's. For example, one newer type technique is using rhythms and music to help Parkinson's patients practice things like walking and moving. And they found that using rhythmic stimuli like music can help people regain walking and as well as other neurological disorders like stuttering it can help people regain fluency when they speak. So stutterers often have difficulty timing their speech and giving them a rhythmic stimulus like a metronome or music can help them to time their speech. One way that our research is applied in the medical world is therapeutic treatments for people with disorders of timing. For example, stuttering is another disorder of timing where people have trouble generating an internal. And so one way to help them is by giving them some sort of rhythmic stimulus like a metronome or a beat that they can speak with. And what we've found is that when people speak along with the, with the beat that's given to them, they speak more fluently and with less of a stutter. And this has also been shown in people who have stutters when they speak but not when they sing. This is also relevant for patients with Parkinson's disease, where there's a structure in their brain that doesn't produce dopamine, and they have trouble initiating movements. But when you provide them with a beat, like in music, they are able to move more fluently, and they can even relearn how to walk. Wow, that's never occurred to me with stuttering, where someone might have difficulty speaking normally, but that they would be able to sing perfectly because they have that external stimulus that they can keep a beat to. After this experience in your laboratory, where do you think the future direction of this project will go? My hope is that we'll understand how we time events in the brain and how we perceive time better so that we can help people that have disorders of timing and help to develop therapeutic techniques that can be implemented for anyone that has difficulty timing their movements or perceiving time. Thanks for joining us this morning, Carolyn. It was a really interesting topic to learn about, and I hope our audience feels the same way. And good luck with the rest of your research. Thank you for having me on. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.